My name is John Walsh. Uh, I beat the often path by uh, focusing on accelerating the transition to clean mobility. John Walsh is the founder and CEO of Endera, a company pioneering a sector of the electric vehicle market that you probably haven't thought much about, shuttles and buses. No, they're not just for pub crawls, although it is Friday, so why not green up your booze tonight? Rather, it's a sector with profound implications anywhere short-distance travel is needed. Their EVs have exceptional performance and range, and they represent a huge potential benefit for a wasteful and yet important part of our society. His company, Endera, has raised over $20 million in funding, and John has been featured in Forbes 30 Under 30 as well as on Shark Tank. So buckle up for a fascinating conversation with somebody who really has his vision locked on building a better future for us all. So here's John Walsh, I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. All right, well, speaking of accelerating, welcome to the show, John. I've been told from my screenwriter friends who are currently on strike that the key to making something interesting over a long period of time is to have a countdown of some sort. I don't know how hot it is where you are. It's about 100 degrees where I am. The countdown is on. How long before I sweat entirely through my shirt in this podcast studio? <laughs> we'll go for 30 minutes and hope for the best. Um, All right. But thank you for joining me. Uh, you've been up to some really cool stuff. You are, of course, Forbes 30 Under 30 nominee, but you've also been doing multiple companies from what I've seen. So talk to me about that acceleration of the transition and how did you end up here? Sure. Well, I've always been fascinated by clean energy and even at a young age, watching The Inconvenient Truth and yep. kind of freaks you out when you're a young kid uh, that you could be potentially creating. and Yeah, some, yeah. But, Freaked me out, you know, yeah. The, 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 the idea that you'd be creating a potentially unlivable planet is definitely concerning. And so since a young age, I've always been fascinated by uh, clean technology and, and finding a, an economically viable solution to sustainable energy. And I started my first clean tech company when I was 19, just leaving high school. Yeah, it was ambitious. Uh, It it was algae biofuel, which it was fascinating because algae is like 50% lipid content. And uh, so it's oil and and people don't even realize that in the ocean, all of that offshore drilling is millions of years of sedimented algae um, that, that we're drilling up. And and so as sort of like a drop-in replacement to the existing infrastructure, having a, a sustainable bio- biofuel it intrigued me that the challenge is that algae dies uh, and, um, and you got to benchmark it to, to oil, uh, but got to learn a tremendous amount through, through those experiences and mm. bringing people together towards a common goal, fundraising, commercializing technologies um, that, that really supported me in, in my future ventures. So that's pretty obscure. When I was that age, if I was entrepreneurial at all, I might have thought of reselling a Snickers bar to somebody for 50 cents that I bought for 25 cents. How the heck did you come up with the idea of something that seems so random at such a young age? It was very random. He was watching a documentary on algae, and, and algae was somewhat of a, a wave and a movement in like 2006 to 2013 when oil was $100 a barrel and going to war for oil. And, um, and so the, the concept of having a locally, uh, a locally sourced system that could produce energy in, in a distributed fashion was the concept. Um, it, it was definitely over ambitious and I was over my skis. And I, I think the, 
the big lesson learned is, is you, you've got to focus on the contracts. You've got to focus on the economic viability and, and you've got to focus on the requirements of what the customer wants. I, I think so many times people come up with ideas and then they try to fit a market and it's like putting a square peg in a round hole where if you lead with the customer development and what the customer wants and you can validate that, uh, all your problems become good problems to have. Well, there's so many different ways in, and I think we should kind of anchor this into what you're doing now, because there are many ways to contribute. If doing the show has taught me anything, it's that there are many, many different ways or places to come in to approach solving these problems, also from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Some people think that that is with a super sexy motorcycle that is electronic and uh, different. Some people think that's with a car or a sports car. Some people think that's capturing carbon from diesel semis and big trucks. Mm -hmm. You've targeted something that we haven't featured yet before, which is this shuttle space. Uh, how would you categorize the type of vehicle that you've chosen? And why yeah. did you choose to go into that market? Sure. So we're in the mid-size shuttle bus and type A school bus market. So it's specialty EVs. The The benefit of focusing on those types of markets is that it's niche, but it, it, it has a lot of properties that are really ripe for electrification. And, and so it's not millions of units a year in the United States, but uh, it is perfect for electrification because you've got planned routes, you've got fixed routes, you can manage the infrastructure. And that is actually, I think, the, the biggest way to make uh, a carbon reduction impact on an individual level is to get more people in electric buses. Hmm. And, and this is a specific type of shuttle bus. It's not your traditional, it's slightly smaller than a large city bus, for example. So yeah. what made you decide to go slightly lower than a city bus? Would it extend to a city bus? I know the range on your vehicles is quite impressive. Yeah, so I was in private equity and I got assigned to an electric bus company. I, I was on restructured teams and, uh, and the company I got assigned to was trying to bring in a, an electric bus from China. What I learned is, is that the U.S. doesn't really trust Chinese transportation equipment um, in, in terms of quality. And then there's also a lot of Buy America requirements. 75% of the market is is publicly derived. And uh, and, and so what, what I've learned from previous ventures is, is that it, it's really the people problems that are the challenge. We, we've gone to the moon and back, but um, getting everybody to row in the same boat, go in the same direction is 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 the hard part. And, you said it. And so... And so after a year, I, I resigned and I started in Dara the next day. And uh, I, I really took a consultative approach. I had a pilot client and I, I, I just listened to what they needed. And, and then I got a contract. And so uh, getting the contracts first, building the company second is a great way to scale quickly. Uh, and so I, I sort of fell into it. But I, I've, I've always been fascinated by clean energy and and I think that if you just put yourself out there, opportunities can present themselves. Well, that's a concept that we've heard before, and many entrepreneurs talk about this. And you touched on it earlier about the concept of coming up with an idea and then hoping that there's a product market fit versus validating something first. I think for most people who want to contribute to something, the idea of securing a contract before having a company or any infrastructure sounds amazing, but also ludicrous and insane and impossible. So 
How do you know that you can fulfill a promise like that, having never done it? And why did you decide that you could take that contract on? Well, I, I think that the interesting part about the industrial space is one contract can catalyze a company uh, because of the, the size of the contract. I think the way that I went about it was seeing that the industry didn't really trust what was out there. There was a lot of anxiety around failed deployments. There was a lot of confusion around what was possible. Uh, and and there was no one-stop shop offering. And so what, what I did was is I, I took a consultative approach that really said, all right, I'm not going to tell you what you guys need. You tell me what you need. Let's build this together. And um, but let's cut through all the BS. Let's let, let's verify claims and let's make sure that we can actually get you a product that you need. And so I think relationships is huge in, in accomplishing that. And and then really just being open and transparent and and building trust. And so that was the way that that I had started the company. And coming from finance, I, I don't want to build anything. I, I, I wanted to subcontract everything out and. I saw that there was a lot of recurring revenue opportunities and that was great on paper, but in practice, the the people problems are the challenge, right? When, when you have a vendor that doesn't do what they say they're going to do, or, or, or you need to have someone service your product. Um, and, and then I, my badges on the vehicle, uh, things become a challenge. And so I, I started lean by, by subbing everything out and then, it became evident that we needed to vertically integrate from there if we if we really wanted to scale. Mm -hmm. And now you've got at least two locations, one here in California and another in Ohio, a massive facility in Ohio, I believe, right? Anywhere else? Yeah, so we've got a quarter million square foot factory in Ohio. It's on a million square foot campus. Impressive. And then we have an R&D facility in California. So it's, okay. it's productions in Ohio and R&Ds in California. So in the type of work that I do when, you know, I, I do digital marketing, I have my own agency. Whenever somebody, whenever I try to get a client with somebody, the first thing they ask me is, what have you done before? Let me see your examples of previous work. How do you overcome that barrier if you have literally not done the thing that you're promising to somebody? Sure. Well, the thing is, is that not really anybody has done mm. uh, this in this space. So I, I don't think there's really anybody who um, has done exactly that. But I think that the confidence and the trust and transparency is is a way you can overcome that. I think that you can highlight your capability, um, and and you can hit the logos, ethos, pathos parts of uh, of convincing someone. Um, you know, you, you definitely got to have a sales finesse, but I think that just sticking to transparency and and honesty is is a way where you can overcome that. And I mean, looking at areas that are good to get into from a business perspective are, are areas that are ripe for innovation. Uh, niches are great because you could be a big fish in a small pond. And um, our industry has a high barrier to entry because it's a very capital intensive business, um, but it's exclusionary by nature. When it, it's, it has a high barrier to entry, if you can overcome that barrier to entry, um, you've got a, a tremendous opportunity. So I think also just looking at the demand, it, it, you're judged on how hard the problems you're solving are. Um, and, and, and you get rewarded accordingly. That's a powerful statement in and of itself right there. 
Um, you got a lot of funding about a year ago, at least the last I saw, August or something like that, 2022, 20-some million I saw. Um, how has your concept of the problem changed as you have grown along with it? Do you know things now that you didn't know previously? Do you think about this problem in a different way than you did when you started? I, I think that the, the problems of getting electric buses on the road are are difficult. Um, initially, I, I thought it was much more high level and and you need to kind of connect dots and be bi trilingual. You, you had to get the finance community to understand residual values. You had to work on getting infrastructure installed. Um, but manufacturing is a whole different level of complexity. I mean, especially in automotive where you, you got one part that doesn't come in, you can't deliver the vehicle and you've got hundreds of parts, um, thousands when you include subcomponents. And so um, I, I think that manufacturing is a fascinating industry that not a lot of people get into that due to the offshoring that manufacturing in America faced over the last few decades and, and now then seeing the onshoring, there's a lot of opportunities for innovation because we, we somewhat lost that manufacturing uh, mindset in the U.S. Um, you look at China and and Asia and, and, and the technologies that they developed and, and automations, it's, it's tremendous. And so I, I would encourage people to get into heavy industry. Um, there's a lot of opportunity there. And do you think that they require almost all such things require capital to get into? Are they all capital intensive types of things that you envision when you're saying that? Uh, I mean, manufacturing in general is a more capital intensive space. Um, some more than others, uh, but uh, capital definitely helps. I mean, it, capital kind of runs the world, and um, you need capital to make things happen. Um, but there are ways where you can phase it. I mean, a company that wants to go from a PowerPoint to zero to one thousand in terms of vertical integration overnight—that's um, not reality. Um, and, and you end up having a lot of inefficiencies in capital deployment. Whereas if you're looking at like in manufacturing, vertical integration is always a, a, a topic. And it, it, if you look at it in, in more of a phased approach, um, I think you have more chance of success, right? L look at the areas that make sense to take in house because you can bring things into your own control, which is a lot of it. Um, to then looking at the things that might have cost improvements over time. Yeah. And you've made a, a number of innovations that are specific to the vehicles that you've done. Speaking of manufacturing them in the United States, there's some kind of custom drivetrain that you've made. They charge really fast. They have an all-day range. How did you end up stumbling across some of those key innovations that make your product cost competitive with the alternatives that are fossil fuel-based? Sure. So... It goes down to the requirements of what your clients need fundamentally and, and if you can meet those requirements. And where we are now is a result of data and lessons learned from where we started, which was subcontracting everything. I, I, I think that it's been an iterative development process for, for our company. And uh, we try to create innovations that future-proof uh, our product with high-powered DC fast charging, uh, we, we looked at the infrastructure problem at large and 
the challenges is if you don't have the range to do your routes, speaking from a bus perspective, um, throughout the day, the only way where you can accomplish that is through DC charging. Now, the, the challenge with DC charging is, is you have a huge infrastructure hurdle that's significantly more costly and time consuming uh, than low light, like AC charging, for example. And so the way we designed our architecture is so that you can do your routes during the day and maximize AC charging, which is slow charging overnight when the power's cheapest, uh, but still have that future proof to be able to have it charge fast, but really drive people into their existing behavior patterns that, that they did with gas so that it, it, it's it's less friction. This podcast is brought to you by my digital agency, Aloa. That's A-L-O-A, Digital Agency, a digital marketing agency that helps brands and nonprofits on a mission tell their story. We do website prototyping, design, UI, UX, SEO, CRO, content, 3D design and video, animation, industrial design, content management, learning management systems, and our roots are in e-commerce, managing and building extensive catalogs with hundreds or even thousands of products. In short, we do everything that brands need to grow their digital presence with simple Simple, transparent monthly pricing that you can build a la carte. So learn more at aloa.agency. That's A-L-O-A dot agency. Do you measure things differently? I think when normally when people think about battery life in a car, they think of miles, they think of range. But I get the sense that maybe you conceptualize it more in terms of time. Do shuttles generally not view their activity in terms of miles? So there's definitely daily route requirements, but this is a piece of transportation equipment that serves a utility and time off duty is costs. Uh, having a vehicle down is opportunity cost loss and in, in making money. Um, and, and so when you look at the duty cycle of what they need, it, it's, it's not like it's a sexy car that has all these nice to haves. Um, it, it, it's something that is just filling a, a fundamental need. And, and so, if you're looking at how they typically fuel, if you're looking at uh, how many miles a day the vehicle goes, um, if you're looking at how many seats that they need to move X amount of people, which you have an issue with EV because uh, the vehicle's heavier because of the batteries, that y you've got to look at just the fundamental requirements of serving their routes. And then how our operators look at it from a cost perspective is total cost of ownership. So they don't look at just the cost of the vehicle. They look at the input costs, which is the fuel costs and then the maintenance costs. With EV, your maintenance costs go down by up to 80%. And you have the same reduction in energy input costs. And so when you're looking at lease payment plus fuel cost plus maintenance costs versus lease payment plus electricity costs plus maintenance costs, with creative financing, you can be saving money day one by going electric. And, and, and I am a firm believer that having an economic value proposition in addition to the environmental value proposition is the way where you're going to make true impact at scale is if you make it not only cleaner, but cheaper, you're going to have more adoption. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Who has been the most responsive to that line of thinking? What types of sectors or types of people have just instantly latched on to that value. Sure. So the there's two different markets that, that we serve from a high level. There's the public sector, uh, which is municipalities. There's 
the private sector, which are Up crawls. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you, but you, you're not off. Bachelor right? parties, bachelorette parties, yeah, Vegas. Cor yeah. well, cor corporate campuses, uh, hotels, universities, amusement parks, stadiums, uh, all of them, all of those clients are very price sensitive uh, because th there's no public money supporting it. Airports are oftentimes quasi-private public. You have a private operator that's contracted by a public airport to move people, and they have their own mandates. I mean, in, in certain segments, they have to go electric. Um, they, like airports, for example, to go in and out of an airport and have a commercial vehicle, it has to be alt fuel. Um, oh, I didn't know so, that. Yeah, so all, all of the, uh, the buses that you see going in and out of airports are some form of alternative fuel. So they're propane, uh, CNG, and and then when you add an electric and you have that economic value proposition, uh, we've really seen airports uh, be very responsive to, to the fact that it's cheaper. Same thing with uh, hotels. Hotels are very price sensitive, especially with COVID. And they also have a green uh, incentive. A lot of hotels want to be green. Um, but the private segment is is more price sensitive, and, and so with a financing package that has immediately a lower total cost of ownership, that's where you see uh, adoption uh, because it's cheaper. The, the other segment is the public sector, where they also have to go electric. I mean, California, ten percent of our vehicle classes in twenty twenty four have to be electric, um, and the way that these municipalities have been funding their transportation equipment is it, in the gas era is through federal transit administration money. It's a public good. You got to move people. You got to have the poorest among us have a way to get to work and, um, and put food on their family's table. And, and so you're seeing a lot of momentum in that sector because the governments are just saying you have to go electric. Um, and we're going to fund it through the same medium that we've been funding gas vehicles. But from an economic perspective, the private sector is, is the most receptive to that. I mean, that's encouraging that some of those areas that people might not think of are at least prioritizing this. I didn't know that airports had that as a mandate. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, so obviously, I, I'm always interested in the duality between social good and entrepreneurship. And that's part of the intersection of the, the theme of this show. And I'm wondering if you feel that there is a tension between the world of business and the world of making money and the idea of doing something that's good for humanity. I mean, obviously, building such a company is, is a great step towards solving these problems. Do you feel an internal tension between the desires of making as much money as possible and the traditional business metrics versus your other idea, which is making as much good as possible and enacting some sort of broader change? Sure. Right. I think that making money can be a byproduct of a passion uh, to to advance humanity. I mean, my personal mission is to, uh, you know, have a positive impact on humanity. And, and, and that's that's where my career has been centered around. And uh, the byproduct is, is you can create a profitable business that really just feeds into the I mean, we're, we live in a capitalistic society and that's how you can facilitate impact. Um, and I think that in terms of inspiring people, uh, having a team that is motivated towards a common goal, uh, doing something that advances humanity is inspiring and it, and it can be really powerful uh, and productive. Uh, when you have a, um, 
a mission or, or a vision that is advancing humanity. I mean, we're all humans. And, uh, you know, when you compare that to something that doesn't necessarily have the same uh, inspiration, uh, it, it's, I think, more challenging to even attract people. Or good people, maybe. Yeah. Maybe genuine talent and the right kind of people who are in it for the right reasons. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I also think, you know, maybe a few decades ago we were debating a lot of the question about whether capitalism, I mean, people are still wondering whether this system that we're all a part of is the best, but it seems like for all intents and purposes, it has won, that that, that capitalism is here to stay. Yeah. So then the intelligent person simply asks themselves, what can I do within the confines of this system that realistically none of us are going to change? Um, do you feel that this is just the way that it is? Do you feel that this system, that working within these systems is our best chance of mitigating these true problems that we all face, climate change, disaster, all of that? Sure. I, I think that capitalism isn't perfect. Uh, America is not perfect. Uh, I, I think that it's the best thing that we currently have right now to, to do that. I, I think that you could have an argument that capitalism has created a lot of environmental destruction, but you can also make an argument that capitalism can drive innovation to, um, to help the environment. And, and really, I think it's about just a, a collective awakening of what kind of society we want to live in, or even having regulatory mandates that try to push people towards what is best for humanity long-term. And then if you can use that system to, to drive change, Capitalism can be a very powerful thing. Yeah, I completely agree. And especially in sectors like this, what I love about it the most is that there are certain things that are just easy to slide in. And you mentioned at the beginning, you know, us all rowing in the same direction and getting everybody to agree. When I was a kid, I don't remember when, I was riding a school bus at a certain point in time. And then one day you show up to school and that school bus is powered by natural gas. Some of them were. I had no say in that. There wasn't a parent-teacher yep. committee. It just happened at some point. Did I care? Did any kid care? No, of course not, because you only cared about the utility of the school bus bringing you safely from point A to school, right? So I think if you're talking about a shuttle, there are so many things that nobody would care or even notice if every shuttle mid-sized was replaced overnight with an electric equivalent, any passenger would have no clue that that happened except maybe it would be a slightly quieter ride. I love stuff like that. Because that's the kind of change that you can make without anybody even noticing and society is incrementally improving without drawing yep. so much attention. Because anytime you draw attention, you draw criticism and it just makes it harder, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, what I like about our segment is, is the ugly, the overlooked, the neglected. <laughs> right. it, 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 it gives room for opportunity. Right. Uh, and. And then you add the economic driver behind it and, and you, you can push it. I, I think that like when you go to schools, I mean, no one wants your child breathing diesel smoke. Um, and, and there's a lot of studies that show the, the negative harm on not only test results, but just the long-term effects like asthma and things like that, that the kids have. And kids don't know any better, but uh, that's why... You know, you, you can start making your own decisions when you're 18 because sometimes you, you don't know better. So, you know, there's laws in place that are meant to to support humans, even, you know, to fight our own worst tendencies sometimes um, and to protect us. Um, but then overlaying capitalism and um, the driver of what makes the world go around, which is, you know, the economics behind it, um, 
to have change. It's a powerful cocktail. It's very special. Strong. Um, yeah, <laughs> you've you've grown quite rapidly. How many people are part of your team now? Oh, we've got. I don't know the exact number. I think it's probably over 120 employees now. 120. And what was that a year ago? Uh, probably half that. About half. Okay. Yeah. So sky's the limit. Uh, what do yep. you, best case scenario, what do you think is the realistic best case scenario for what you're trying to do, let's say the next five years? Sure. Uh, well, our, our strategy is to really focus on the U.S. market first, where there's a lot of opportunity. Um, and and be very laser focused in these core markets where electrification is ideal and that we've got a strong competitive mode that we can continue to reinforce with a roadmap. Uh, but th there's there's a huge amount of opportunities in the data in software systems to uh, to reduce inefficiencies, um, to, to provide a better customer experience. Like a lot of times people have anxiety if they don't know when their bus is going to arrive. They don't know how many seats are available. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, but with Uber, you, you could wait ten minutes and you know it's going to arrive. And, and so, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to enhance the customer experience, to get more people in buses, um, and and there's a lot of technologies that can be innovated to do that. But our, our company is very focused in these markets. We've always been in these markets. We're we're we're, we're very focused on on growing market share in these sectors. Um, and, and then, I mean, internationally, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. Uh, but over the next five years, really, it's it's focused on the U.S. market. Sounds like a reasonable plan. T to what degree does the bigger picture motivate you on a day-to-day -day basis, especially when things are tough? Are you able to step back and say, I'm doing something good for the planet here? Yeah, I think that everybody in our company has got to know what our vision is and everything that they do every single day, all the way down to uh, the painters and the line workers putting a bus together feeds into the broader vision of accelerating the transition to clean mobility. And and it's a good compass and a good way to motivate people. If you have a clear vision and a clear goal, like we have town halls where we really just sort of tie our goals and we tie everything we're doing, it can be cascaded all the way up to that one vision. Um, and, and I think a, a continual reminder of that to, uh, to our team is, is important to make sure that, again, we're all rolling the same boat, going the same direction. People know the why. Um, sure, days are tough. I mean, it, building a company is hard. Um, building an EV manufacturing company is really hard. Um, you know, get, building prototypes easy, getting into production is hard. Um, scaling production is excruciatingly painful. Um, and so I do think that that broader vision helps unite people in, um, in the times where, where, where we face challenges. And I think that the culture, uh, aspect of the company is sometimes underrated and, and having a great culture and a great team where when things are tough, that, that that's the glue that holds everybody together and gets everybody through it. And do you think when it comes to expanding that that glue helps you expand more effectively because we've seen how a few bad apples can poison the bunch to use an overused metaphor, especially when you're growing and you have a lot of employees, it's easy for culture to change or as it radiates out, you don't have as much control over the culture. To what degree do you think having that kind of very clear mission makes it easier for you to scale and you have to worry less about the kinds of new people that are getting drawn into your ecosystem? Sure. 
Well, you, you've got to fundamentally have a culture with, with no egos, um, and, and, and a very little, little level of tolerance for hubris, um, egos kill companies. And that, and I think that as you scale, it, it, it's hard to maintain a culture when you go from 10 to 20 to 50 to 100 to 200. Um, but the way you scale is, is you have that unified vision and you figure out a way to push de- decisions downward efficiently um, so that you can actually scale and, and, and tie all that to your goals. So, I mean, culture is everything um, in, in being able to scale, but uniting people towards a common goal while pushing decisions downward. Um, that That's, I think, the building blocks to scaling. Sounds great. Well, we're approaching the end of our time here. I have a very, very important question. All right, you're in Vegas. You've got a bag of money. you got to place your bet right now. Humanity, going to pull through or doomed? Will they, won't they? I think humanity is going to pull through. I feel never more optimistic about humanity and society. And I, I think that we're going to get through these challenges. We, we've shown throughout time to do that. And there's going to be hurdles and, um, and stumbling blocks along the way. But um, I, I, I'm an eternal optimist and I, I believe in humanity and I love humanity. And so um, I'd bet on us. That's great. So never more optimistic. Why never more optimistic? What about now makes you feel even more confident than before? I think that if you even just look at the pandemic, I mean, it, it was hard for a lot of people. People died. That was terrible. I think it created a, a degree of awakening, though, of, of what type of society we want to live in. I mean, we were running rampant on this planet, and and and, and we were like children that got all of their privileges taken away for two years, and we got put in time out. And I think that it opened people up to what kind of society we want to live in. And, and capital has shifted toward the largest uh, investment class is climate tech. Now, you couldn't have said that five years ago. And, That's wild. and so if you look at that, um, w- we clearly know what we need to do. And, and we're on our way there. How much time it's going to take, what challenges are going to face, what, what the cost is going to be, uh, is going to unravel and evolve over time, but we know where we need to go. And, and I think I couldn't say that uh, as confidently 10 years ago or five years ago. So for that reason is why I feel ever more optimistic. That's awesome. It's like a quilt or a mosaic. And from my position, being able to see all of these intelligent and hardworking people working together on their own piece of this mosaic, really making strides in very different angles. But all of those things cumulatively add up that's extremely exciting. And that's something, like you said, I didn't know that before I started this journey myself. I wasn't in touch with as many people who are doing such incredible things. But certainly it is very comforting to me knowing that people such as yourself are out there and working so hard on these things that are so important. And it makes it a lot easier for me to envision a future not too far away where many of these pieces are just replaced. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to need it all, right? And there's yeah. no one size fits all. No. Um, so it's it's using capitalism and coming up with innovation and having people work together towards this goal of accelerating humanity to clean energy that is going to get us there. Well, I thank you very much for 
sharing a little bit of your time with me. I know how incredibly busy you are. It is a Friday. It was hot as hell. I don't know if I've sweat through my shirt just yet. That was the kind. We're getting there, though. My air conditioning has to be off while we record. That is a trade-off. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. schedule these things midday anymore, not for a couple months. I'm going to have to do the next one at 7 a.m. It is getting rough out here in the valley, let me tell you, folks. Uh, but I very much appreciate it. It's good to know that you're around the corner. Um, I hope you have a wonderful uh, rest of your day. Thanks for sharing your mission and vision. Uh, so many brilliant nuggets in what you said. So many interesting ways that people can think about these problems that they might not otherwise be. Um, very informative, very enlightening. So thank you for sharing the time. You got it. It's my pleasure, Russ. And the last thing, where can people support you? How will they find you, support your work? Uh, you can go on our website, uh, enderamotors.com, and you can see uh, what we do. Alrighty. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, John. And with that, the official podcast interview is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.